Hello and welcome to part five of the Miyazaki Countdown from Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by the Countdown crew, Scott Shelton and Jay Habib. Today on the podcast, we're flying high above the seaside on our magical brooms in our review of Miyazaki's 1989 coming-of-age fantasy film, Kiki's Delivery Service. But first, how are you guys doing? I'm good, Scott. This is our second one in three nights. I feel like we're really just getting into the groove now, and I'm feeling good about that. If uh, anyone who was listening to the last episode will know, I had started a new job three days before. We're now five days in, and still really enjoying and it. you're quitting that's crazy yeah interesting because this movie is in part about starting a new job that's true. one of the things this movie's about true um, true no that that did come to mind at, at one or two moments um just the similarity that one particular similarity i obviously have not moved away from my family i'm not 13 and i don't have a talking cat uh but or a cat that i can understand um Scott, Scott Shelton was about to take me down right there. I was going to say, um, neither, neither, does, neither does Kiki, unfortunately, at the end of the movie, but that's okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we all grow up. Indeed. But I'm good. How are you, Scott Shelton? I'm good. Look, I'm going to continue to repeat it week after week on the podcast. I am thrilled to be watching these movies. I, have a, I really enjoy watching them. And frankly, guys, I feel like we've been able to squeeze in uh, quite a few recordings of the countdown here these past few weeks and the reason for that was because we needed to a we got like a late release on when the release date was going to be and we're like okay we got to speed up a little bit but b also like we're gearing up towards a period of time in which you know we feast as movie watchers as dire as it seemed when dune part two exited the release calendar Uh, the truth is is that fall season is still a big movie season for the podcast overall and the new york film festival coming up i'm seeing more movies than ever at the New York Film Festival this year. And that starts in a week from today. So we had to squeeze in a bunch of recordings because it's going to be harder to record over the next few weeks. We will still squeeze them in, but I feel like this is really getting me back in the, slowly back in the groove of watching films and being excited for movies because there's just something uniquely refreshing about Kiki's Delivery Service, about My Neighbor Totoro. You know, these movies have their hooks in me in, in a specific way that, is very soothing and restorative so it's a it's a nice sort of um balm before the uh sort of coming out at the end of the summer where there's been very little to watch post barbenheimer um going into the fall where even though dune part two has been delayed and and that is the worst thing that could have happened to me for the fall movie calendar it's still lots to lots to come and lots of movies to see yeah, you mentioned going to see the boy and the hair in, in theaters. Actually, I this is this movie is the only Miyazaki film that I've seen in theaters. Um, I got to go watch it last year for Studio Ghibli Fest, which was a delight. But I'm looking forward to seeing the boy and the hair, and of course, as well, um, much later than um, you, you're, you're seeing it. But um, you know, that's probably going to be the case with most most of the movies that you end up seeing. That's that's become our routine at this point. But um, I uh, I hope that I won't have to wait too long on some of them because I know after hearing your takes, I'm going to be salivating over some of them probably. <laughs> Awkwardly drooling on the, on, on the podcast recording, but thankfully we are not a video yeah. medium. So thankfully we're not, not even for the Patreon subscriber. Uh, note, note the singular there. Uh, 
No, we have we, more we than one. Calm down. Calm yeah. yourself. We have more than one. That's true. We do have more than one. And yeah, that's, yeah. that's all I'm going to say on, on the subject of that. Sure. Um, sure. As mentioned, our film today is Kiki's Delivery Service, which Miyazaki directed a mere year after My Neighbor Totoro. Adapted from the novel of the same name by Aiko Kodono, Kiki's Delivery Service is the story of 13-year-old witch in training Kiki, voiced by Kirsten Dunst who leaves home as part of a custom for witches and looks for a new place to settle and start a life of her own. She finds such a place in Corico, a small seaside town where no witches have ever lived before, and where she soon encounters the kind baker's wife, Asono, voiced by Tress McNeil, who offers to let Kiki live in a spare room owned by her and her husband, and also to use the bake shop as a home base for Kiki's fledgling business, delivering items to residents of the town by flying broom. Along with her, along with her sidekick, a talking black cat named Gigi, voiced by Phil Hartman, Kiki is soon awoken to the realities of being an adult, suddenly struggling to find balance between her work, her witch training, basic needs, and new friends, including Tombo, a young boy interested in flight, voiced by Matthew Lawrence, and Ursula, a high-spirited painter, voiced by Janine Garofalo. When Kiki's struggles begin to affect the magical powers she hoped to refine, Kiki is forced to confront her quest for self-sufficiency head-on, perhaps figuring out who she is and what is most important to her in the process. Jay, we'll start with you. Does Kiki's delivery service provide the same immaculate vibes as My Neighbor Totoro? Or does Miyazaki's venture into coming of age suffer the same problems as Kiki in trying to juggle too many ideas? Scott Harvey, as I was telling you, I finished watching this movie one minute before the StreamYard link was sent to us, so my <laughs> thoughts are all very fresh. But I'm going to try uh, to, you know, put them together in a way that makes sense. But honestly, the, the tears only just finished drying on my face. I, I, I'm blown away. Again, like, I'm very fresh, so I'm not going to be very articulate in this exact moment. Scott Shelton is <laughs> celebrating in the back. The vibes... My goodness, like no notes, no notes. Like just what an amazing movie. I was just not expecting to get hit as hard as I did emotionally. Truthfully, like we we're probably, you know, an hour, hour 10 in and I'm still like, you know, this is, this is nice. And then something about the last 20, 25 minutes, I can't even like, I don't even have the words for it yet. And I don't want to you know, skew people towards that. If, you know, you're listening to this and you haven't just, if you haven't seen it and you're like, well now, you know, whatever, but it, my God, no notes. It has the same type of just like innocence and charm that we've seen in a lot of the earlier movies. Again, some very, you know, a lot of similarities, again, very young female protagonist kind of striking out on her own. I can't even like find the words. It's just, it's brought something new to the table. I think it just kind of hit at me and, I would assume many others in an even more raw way than we've seen. Again, Totoro maybe was a close second. I got you know hard to make the direct comparison, but you know as a as far as coming of age stories go, like this has to be near the top of the list. Kirsten Dunst does a good job, you know, with the voice. Yeah, she's probably the only one who I immediately recognized when I looked at the cast list. But of course, she's playing the titular Kiki, so that's you know if I'm gonna recognize anyone. Um, you know, I, I thought I wasn't annoyed by, you know, quote unquote, the little girl voice that, you know, we've talked about is like sometimes can be annoying, sometimes not. The music in this one, you know, there, there are some scenes where she's flying around. They're also just like very just like, 
I don't know. Again, the, the vibes are immaculate. I don't know how else to say it. And all in all, just very glad I watched this. The movie is like a warm herring and pumpkin pot pie, I think I would say. I uh, See, I don't know if I would like herring and pumpkin pot pie. I don't think any of us would. But There's, a, there's always talk about there's a reason. Good... There's a reason why all the kids were not thrilled about the delivery yeah. to the, sure. the pie to the house. There, there, there's always talk about Studio Ghibli movies having like the best looking food in them. Uh, I think this one might have to be the exception. Not that the pie looks bad, but it probably tastes conceptually bad. it's it's questionable yes, at best. It was flawed, yeah. um, but it was made with a lot of love, which is the important thing I think uh, for the the sake of this movie. Scott, Scott Sheldon, over to you. Yeah, look, I think overall this film is. I mean, it's special. It's really special. It was one of the first Studio Ghibli movies that I ever saw. And I sort of came across it strangely in college. I remember I was a freshman and, and there was a bunch of people in a common room watching this movie and sort of like walked in on it about halfway through in the scene where Kiki and Tombo are sort of riding his like bike slash propeller bike for the first time and I just sort of like was sucked in immediately by it so much so that like the next day I like or the next evening I like went and watched the whole movie sort of again to make to like get the whole thing and have just been captivated by the film ever since every time I revisit it it sort of just feels like this warm embrace of a film from the moment that sort of the opening shot sort of finishes Kiki sort of runs off with her radio and the Hasaishi score kicks in. Like, it's just, uh, I just feel like I sort of transcend and, and just sort of disappear for 100 minutes into the, really sort of the idyllic life, like countryside, then into, you know, vague Northern European city that is produced in, in, in the film. And I think one of the things that I just find so arresting about the film is that as much as, the other movies that we've watched in the countdown so far have been about children and children dealing with problems bigger than themselves into Totoro where it's shot like where two children are just sort of experiencing everyday life and some very, you know, minor issues and family problems that can be very significant in their impact and around a change in scenery, a change in life. But this film is, is sort of about sort of almost the most mundane issues that, that every person's going to, going to come across there's nothing there's no big quote-unquote life event that's happening like a mother being sick or this other thing like this person is growing up and it's time for them to, to set out and become independent um, from from their family from their town from their culture and go along their way and I think that there's you know a, a, a the specific age of Kiki being 13 and that's their time to sort of set off Aside, like we all, every person experiences that at one point or another. And whether you're flying on a broom to a new city and starting a delivery service because you're the only person in the town that can fly and deliver things, or whether it's going to college or whether it's graduating from college and going to your first job, like we all experience these things. I think we all experience exactly the sort of cycles that Kiki goes through, like questioning whether we've made the right decisions, not really understanding what our purpose is. And there's just such a level of mundanity, but like universality to those experiences. And just like sort of Kiki experiences 
in the moment on all those things. Like they just feel like they're taking over your entire life. And I just remember watching this freshman year in college and feeling like super validated about a lot of the things that I was feeling, <laughs> having moved into a new environment. And every stage of my life after that, to varying degrees, I just feel like I almost re-experienced some of these things. You know, luckily I'm someone who hasn't really felt like I've questioned much of the many of the choices that I've made, but even in feeling pretty positive about all the things that I've I've done, I still kind of still feel where Kiki is coming from in a lot of ways. And the process of growing up is is both easy and hard at the same time. It's the easiest thing to walk out the door and into the next experience and then the hardest thing to sort of reckon with doing it once you're there. And I just find this movie captures that brilliantly. There's obviously a lot of other elements of the film, like the relationship with Tombo and the, and everything going on there and her dealing with her own sort of anxieties and depression and insecurities that again, it's sort of like minor, minor key and minor scale, but in its, in its reality of not being this huge big deal that the film is making it out to be sort of almost rings true in its universal universality. Like it, like the fact that you're struggling with maybe a little bit of depression or a little bit of insecurity or a little bit of anxiety is so real. Like you don't have to be experiencing these grand sort of disruptions in your life to be sad and to need to find a way to, to sort of push through those things and have the support of people around you and mentors and things like that to reach out to, to fix those things. And, and I mean, I've just, I don't know if I've ever watched a movie that just, I feel like so universally captures an experience that most people go through multiple times in their life, not just once. And it's sort of remarkable for that. And Gigi is the goat. So. Can we re-record this episode tomorrow night? Since, you know, you watch the movie for the first time on back-to-back nights. If you give me another night, I'm sure I'll be able to capture my thoughts as eloquently as you just did. I mean, I've also been thinking about this movie for, <laughs> as I realized on the podcast a couple days ago, a decade now. So that was like oh my really, God, why really you... upsetting. Really upsetting. We're, we're coming right back to that, aren't we? Yeah, it's going to um, be a recurring theme on this podcast. Now. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, so this was the first Studio Ghibli movie that I watched. And I believe it was recommended to me by maybe multiple people, but I know Scott in particular said that this is one that I should start with just because I think it is the, the most on my wavelength in terms of, you know, the style, but also the themes and ideas that it's going for. Um, and yeah, uh, I mean, it was my gateway into Miyazaki. And as soon as I watched this, I was like, yeah, I've got to watch all of these movies now because I absolutely love this movie it's my favorite of the studio ghibli movies that i've watched um it's my 53rd favorite movie of all time now according to my top 100 um and only only climbing the more that i think about it only soaring higher on its broom um the more i think about it because um it really is such a perfect distillation of these ideas that scott is talking about of, of growing up of adolescence of the struggles that we all face in trying to be self-sufficient in this, you know, charming, delightful fantasy package that Miyazaki we know can bring, like we just saw in the last movie. Um, and the way that he's able to fuse those things together so seamlessly, it feels like a magic trick. It really does. Um, it, it's it's a flawless movie for the most part, in my opinion. Um, and I think it hits for all of us maybe because of, you know, us having recently sort of experienced this or at least in the last 
few years or so, you know, it's like the period when you graduate college. I mean, it's, it is weird because she's 13 in the movie, right? Like uh, as Scott points, points out, but I really, you know, I think this is less portraying adolescence, although it is in some regards as, you know, Scott's mentioning like the stuff with her and Tombow and like, oh, she's feeling a little bit insecure about like his friends and like fitting in and what she's wearing and that sort of stuff. That is maybe more the adolescent side, but then a lot of the stuff she's going through is like when you're, you know, fresh out of college, you're moving to a, a new place on your own, right? You don't have a blanket of college to like protect you. You are finding that first job, whatever it may be. You're figuring out how to feed yourself uh, because maybe you never had to do that before. Uh, at least every forever. Life. Oh, well. Yeah. Um, and just trying to maintain that work-life balance. You know, it's a cliche phrase, but that that is what this movie is about, right? Is Kiki is struggling to balance everything in her life um, and starts to experience, yes, depression, anxiety, just pure exhaustion um, as a result of this. And I think we've all felt that. Uh, from time to time how are we supposed to keep up with all of our responsibilities it doesn't feel like we're ready for you know we were prepared for this it doesn't feel like maybe we can be prepared for this um and i think the the struggles that she's facing again are, are more relatable to people in like in our age group maybe than somebody who's 13 like kiki is and so i i just i, I love it you know it, weirdly enough, it fits alongside these, you know, movies. Like, again, I'm talking about it being like this post-college type movie, you know, movies like Girlfriends, movies like Francis Ha. It doesn't, it's, you know, it's very different from those movies, but it's portraying the same stage of life and characters experiencing many of the same struggles. But again, it's doing it in this effortlessly charming fantasy package, right? Like, you know, if you if you ask somebody what this movie is about, they would probably say, oh, it's about a witch who flies on a broom and, you know, runs a delivery service or whatever. But that's not really what the movie is about, right? Like, yes, it has those trappings, but that is just the, the package for something, like, far more profound. Um, and that's why this resonates probably the deepest with me, in addition to all the other stuff I've said, because, you know, again coming back to it beating the dead horse like fantasy is not necessarily my genre i can't necessarily lock in with something that is just high fantasy a lot of lore a lot of you know creatures and stuff like that this movie is very light on the fantasy and the fantasy is very much just a vehicle for the ideas the the very human again relatable ideas that we're talking about um and i think it just it, it it's it's a perfect synthesis like like i said i couldn't love this movie more i actually didn't get a chance to rewatch it for this podcast just because i guess i'm having trouble maintaining a work-life balance right now or something but um i couldn't fit it in but i'm like sorry that i couldn't because i could watch this movie anytime and i know the more we talk about it here the more i'm going to be like yeah i wish i could just fire this up right now because um, I mean, I've seen it probably three times now, um, but it, it, it is one of those movies that you feel like you could just throw on any time. And we talked about Totoro being the sort of, you know, film to show to your children. Um, I think this movie is also that, not 
as young of a of you know a child as we were talking about with Totoro. But this is a movie that I think I would love to show to um, you know a, a kid who's nearing adolescence someday because it it it. it it exemplifies so many values, which I think are important for people at that age. You know, it's okay to be tired. It's okay to be sad sometimes. Like it's okay to go through the stuff that Kiki is going through. Um, but also the fact that Kiki is able to maintain an optimism and, you know, willingness to pursue her passion um, throughout all of this is like, I think she's a perfect role model of a character for somebody um of that age so yeah i have a 14 year old brother like very recently turned 14 like he's watching this movie in the next bit <laughs> it's it's happening like he doesn't have a say in the matter um you know i'm not gonna go as far as to say i'm gonna fly back to la to force him to but you know i'm not I'll saying swing, I I'll, sw- I'll swing by next week and make sure he pops it on <laughs> might be worth it honestly and you know scott harvey to kind of drive that point home of you know the 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 magic the fantasy elements being a vehicle like they you know they in a movie that i think does a great job of not over explaining like witchcraft and how they fit into yeah. society and the rules of all of it they do go you know they make a point of saying like you know ursula makes the point of saying it's just like you know my i don't know if she's like drawing or creating art or you know whatever it is like and she makes that comparison so easily and i think you know from there it, it's not a stretch to compare to any other you know, passion that any of us regular people might pursue, but the movie does such a good job just blending the two and being like, it's the same without it being like, it's the same, like hitting it on the head, you know? Yeah. And again, another thing that I think is, is so related, even though, you know, they're talking about sort of writer's block, artist's block, creator's block in a, in a way, uh, I think like, at least for somebody like me, you know, who I think is similar to to Kiki in that, you know, she's devoted her life to being a witch. Like that's all she's kind of ever known she was going to do. And that's all she is pursuing. And then, you know, again, I've always known what field I wanted to go into in terms of my work. I've always pursued that. And then you get to the point where, okay, well, I did it. I achieved it. I'm a lawyer, right? And you still have these moments of like, well, I devoted my whole life to this. What if I'm like not actually good at it, right? Like, what if I can't do it? Um, you know, have have I, do, do I need to, you know, change somehow? Um, can I change somehow? I think that's a, a lot of what she's experiencing too. Even though, again, it's couched in the idea of a witch not being able to fly on her broom anymore. As moving forward, as far as the the voice cast goes, uh, Jay, you know, you gave some of your thoughts. So maybe we'll start Scott here. But um, Kirsten Dunst, the most notable name here, voicing uh, Kiki. Um, I don't know when they did the dub for this, but I imagine she was still fairly young. 1997. Okay, yeah. So she was still fairly young. Of course, she was acting ever since she was a child, but... um, the late Phil Hartman as the voice of Gigi. We have um, Janine Garofalo, who, as I mentioned, as as Ursula, and Debbie Reynolds as the older lady. I don't know. I don't know what her character's name is, but um, the the woman who I makes. I think she uh, has a name. I think she's just like okay. Yeah, I don't think she does. Right? Yeah, there's always the granny character, I guess. But um, those are the, sort of the more 
notable names maybe then you have matthew lawrence the voice of tombo you have tress mcneil as Asono, a bit bigger of a voice cast than we talked about last time with my neighbor totoro scott any thoughts on the performances here you know any anyone stand out for you yeah i mean i think kirsten dunst and phil hartman have the biggest roles right like they are your central characters Gigi's not in every scene of course but for a while in the movie he is and then kiki yeah, I'm not even sure there's a scene in the movie without Kiki in it. And you really have to depend on Kirsten Dunst to, to sort of enthrall you from the moment she starts to talk to her mother about how she's going to leave and set off because it's going to be a cloudless full moon. And if they wait next month, maybe it won't be, maybe the sky will be cloudy and it won't be the perfect omen for her to leave. And, they'll, and so her eagerness, that sort of like bright eyed, bushy tailed eagerness to make that next step in, in her life's journey for me, at least, I think it sort of immediately captures what, you know, captures me, pulls me in and immediately invests, gets me invested in what's happening to her, to Kiki. And it sort of never lets me go from there. You know, even as she experiences setback and then success and setback and then success and setback and then success, there's a, there's just a, a warmth and, and, empathy that the performance sort of draws from me and it's hard to deny that Dunst like yes the way the character is written is is a part of that but Kirsten Dunst's performance is is key to that as well and then Gigi is you know sort of the ideal familiar sidekick of a cat in my book and I think that there's some interesting stuff going on there with what happens with Gigi over the course of the film thematically but overall I think because of how much Phil Hartman is able to endear you to Gigi, it hits really hard when Kiki's no longer able to understand what Gigi is saying. So I feel that every time I watch the movie, even though I know it's coming, I remember the first time watching the movie, I was like, oh, like that's, that's not good. Um, that's, how, that's when this stuff gets real in the film or at least it feels like it really starts to get real for kiki and that's i mean to me that's because you care a lot about about kiki her relationship with Gigi, and Gigi. all you care about all three of those things uh, because in part because of the characters but a big part also in, in the performances yeah just since you brought it up and it was something else that i wanted to flag to talk about but the role of Gigi as a character in the in the movie obviously he has sort of this sidekick for her in the beginning he is someone something from her home right that she can bring along and is familiar to her and is a comfort to her um and she is the only one who can understand him hear him talking um but as you you mentioned um when she starts going through this period of you know artist block um she can no longer hear Gigi and also Gigi starts abandoning her to some regard uh, spending some time with the the other cat um and by the end of the movie of course she has gotten her powers back she's able to fly on the broom again she has for the most part sort of gotten her mojo back but she is still not able to hear Gigi talking which I think is a really important point again in all of the the ideas that the movie has about growing up and sort of this idea that 
things are never going to be able to really go back to the way that they used to be. Um, and, you know, like when you were a child, when you were, you know, before, before you had to fend for yourself. Um, but these familiar things that we once knew can still be that same comfort to us, just in a different way than maybe we're accustomed to. Other thoughts on sort of the role of Gigi and sort of the, the deeper ideas behind that character and losing his voice and all that. Thinking on it in the limited time I've had, it, you know, it, in addition to being, you know, kind of a, a childhood comfort to uh, uh, Kiki, um, it feels like, you know, I don't think it's any stretch to say Gigi kind of feels like an extension of that side of her personality and kind of, you know, is giving her a medium to have some of these more like unfiltered thoughts about what's going on. Like, even if they're not like exactly what she's thinking, but kind of like in the back of her mind, whether it's like when the weather is getting bad or that's a snobby cat or like whatever it is. And, you know, I think another way, you know, I would read it, you know, just by the, by way of the fact that she's not speaking to, or, you know, she's not understanding or speaking to Gigi by the end is that she doesn't really need that anymore right like there has been kind of just that you know that moment of inspiration or that moment of acceptance or you know again there's probably a few different ways we can describe it but it feels like by the end of the movie she just doesn't need that anymore and you know it, it was like weirdly sad right because i'm like wait what like you're talking cat or your cat you can talk to but again like her her not needing that by the end and it being like okay because, you, know, you know, she she has that moment, you know, where she hears the meow and rather than being like, wait, what? Why isn't this still working? It's just like, I'm good. And, she, you know, she obviously writes the letter to her parents at the end being like, we are happy. It just really, really, I think really reinforces that, like, Kiki's going to be okay. It hit insanely hard all at the end. Yeah, I think I, I agree with that take, honestly. I, I think it's it's really interesting that, I believe like the film really frames the crisis in a way of like, whether you call it artist block or whether you just call it like sort of imposter syndrome or self-doubt, however you want to phrase what Kiki is going through. I think they're ultimately just similar, like variations on the same thing. I think one of the interesting aspects of that is that she can no longer hear Gigi because of these like self-doubts and, and this imposter syndrome and this block that she's experiencing and that Gigi is trying to there's this notion that Gigi is trying to communicate something to her but she because of these external factors and and translating to her internal you know internal feelings she's no longer really able to understand that but then you cycle through everything that happens and she overcomes those self-doubts she regains access to her witch powers and at the end exactly what you said Jay like she's able to accept that even overcoming that that block that doubt doesn't mean she's going to be able like doesn't mean she is able to talk to Gigi again and she's okay with that because I agree exactly what you said it signifies that she doesn't necessarily need his wisdom anymore she's managed to find her own wisdom mm -hmm. her own um confidence her own um sort of you know which compass to to follow that's not necessarily guided by Gigi anymore not that they're not as close as they always were not that she doesn't value him i mean i think one of the big sort of denoting things at the end is the fact that rather than Gigi just sort of existing in, in the room and in the space that 
she leaves him in when she goes on the sort of field trip um, or like overnight stay with Ursula. Like he finds her, right? He seeks her out and they are reunited. They just can't speak to each other. And I think that's like a big, a big part because as she sort of tried to go on her journey to overcome these, these self-doubts, it's, he did not follow her in that and, and they needed time apart and then come back together and, and still have that appreciation for each other, even though their relationship has evolved. Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's perfectly said. And it's one of the important relationships in the movie, obviously. Another one, I think, is um, her relationship with Tombo, right? With, um, you know, the young boy who is interested in flight. Imagine that in a Miyazaki uh, movie. We have a character who's interested in flight. But, um, and also they, simping so, towards our... I was going to say, he, he <laughs> Sorry, sorry. No, no, you're good. He falls in the great tradition of uh, the the simping males in these movies a little bit because he is like pretty much entranced by Kiki. He um, shoots a shot the first time he sees her. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then you have the uh, you have a Sona like getting getting in on it and like conspiring to have her make a delivery um, to him, um, which is is pretty funny as well. But um, what do you think? this relationship you know means in the in the the overall course of the movie and means to kiki as a character because um you know there there are a few different directions that it goes in i talked about earlier about the scene where all of his friends pull up and kiki feels a little intimidated and decides like not to hang out with him anymore um but then also sort of the climax of the movie is kiki having to rescue him from this airship accident that is going on um, and sort of risking it all and um, risking, you know, the fact that her powers haven't been fully, fully, uh, you know, firing and, and heading out there to rescue him regardless. What do you think this relationship means, again, in the overall course of the movie and to Kiki as a character? I'll take a second to think about, you know, kind of what it means earlier on. Cause I mean, no, obviously she's very reluctant to like speak to him. You know, she kind of has that first blurb towards him. I'm going to misquote it, but something along the lines of, you know, I was taught that a boy shouldn't speak to a woman unless he's been properly in- or formally introduced. But later on, you know, as after they've developed a friendship and then we see that scene that you just talked about where, you know, her, his friends pull up and, you know, are like, come with and whatnot. You know, I, I mean, I see that as just one extension of like a a possible future or just something enticing about the journey you're going on. Right. Like in her mind, you know, she, she's like wanted friends and, you know, like here, here's not like, you know, she's made one and here's an opportunity to like have these, which, you know, we see her like kind of shoot these glances at like groups of girlfriends like earlier in the movie too and she's maybe just starting to get comfortable with what's happening but now it's like oh like you might actually get what you were looking for but also it might end like horribly um and i don't i don't think it helps right that you know one of the girls that is there is the girl that she delivered that pot pie to um and you know that girl wasn't particularly nice about it right so i think it's just another not another maybe, but just like an example of something that's like, hey, like, you know, this is that thing you really want and you might be able to get it and you might not. And it's, you know, just one of those things that we struggle with during periods of change or coming into adolescence, right? Is like, 
will I fit in? Will I get this thing? Will it be as great as I thought? Or will I just embarrass myself and go home? You know, I think that's not how it ends really, right? Like, I think, you know, by, by the time we get to the end, like, she's kind of just honed in on, like, you know, this is my friend. I have to save him rather than thinking about it in the context of, like, what it means more broadly, right? Like, you know, at the very, very end, like, she lands and there's all this attention on her and, you know, she's not really even she's not really reveling in it at all she's just like oh yeah i did that you know i think by the end like it's more about the friendship itself than it is about you know what the friendship like could mean for her future or like what you know the friendship as like a representation of her future i almost feel like the thing the two things are i mean obviously they are they are connected but in some ways also kind of separate like there's this notion that all of these experiences she's having early in the film are what's leading her to sort of ultimately build up towards questioning what she's doing, why she's doing it, that all that self, like that self doubt and that, that block that we've been talking about. And the experience with Tombo and his friends is a part of that. Like she doesn't really understand why Tombo is like, wants to be friends with her or is interested in her. Right. Like there's this notion that, you know, why are you even talking to me? You don't know me. You shouldn't be talking to me because of these things. It's not, I don't find it's not like, obviously he intends it to be flattering. Right. But like the impact is that is like confusion. Be like, why are you trying to flatter me? I don't get it. And I think that there's like all these these other parts to it. Um, that is one example. There's other stuff as well. But her, you know, the the lack almost like lack of fulfillment she gets in these sort of basic tasks that she's doing, and the lack of fulfillment that she ultimately gets from spending time with Tombo. Right. The truth is, is that she's having fun in the moment, but as soon as it's over, she's questioning why all of it why 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 why? and then at the end i think part of it's impossible to talk about the end of the movie without thinking about that but also thinking about what happens right before it about her having those conversations and spending that time with ursula and then sort of recovering and realizing that her purpose isn't so literal like her purpose is not to like literally just deliver goods to people but it's like more almost it's, it's like almost more grandiose in a, in a way holistic yeah exactly right. this idea is like kiki's delivery service is just about helping people right like some in the most basic way then the most obvious way is she can deliver things longer distances that people is either inconvenient or it's difficult for them to travel to but then there's instances where you know people in this specifically her friend tombo are in danger and i think obviously there's a matter of convenience that those two things are intertwined that tombo is this person who has expressed interest in her and she has developed some sort of relationship with and is also in danger but I wonder how much truth there would be if there was, if there, you know, if the old man she takes the broom from were to swap places with Tombo, right? Would, would she act the same way and rescue the same way? I would, I would tend to believe that she would. And I think that more speaks to the fact that, yes, she has this relationship with Tombo, but really by the end of the movie, she's sort of accepted who she is and accepts that like her purpose is that she wants to help people and a lot of times it's going to seem really mundane in the way that she's doing it but in these bigger times it can mean something bigger and more grandiose as well and the reason why she wasn't necessarily finding fulfillment in the work that she was doing was because she didn't really understand how she was helping people I think and I think that this sort of like much larger exercise in saving someone a it was good because it was Tombo and there's this relationship there but b I think it sort of elucidates how her abilities can really help people. And she doesn't have to be a superhero day in and then day out to do these things, like work these magical feats, but everything sort of contributes to that. 
Yeah, and you know, we're talking about her kind of realizing in the end that Gigi can still be, you know, again, something important to her, a comfort to her, but also something that she can sort of grow past this one aspect, at least of, of talking to him. And, and maybe, you know, Tombo is kind of a person who can fill in that gap in her life right now, a companion who, um, you know, she can confide in, can, you know, put her trust in, can share similar interests in, and can be that sort of comfort um, that that uh, Gigi was to her when she, he was even still talking. Um, and so... Or, or maybe not. Yeah. Like, I think that that's sure. sort of an ambiguous ending about, like, where their friendship will go and how far it will extend into, right? Like, she's ultimately still only in the city for... I think the whole purpose is just to stay there for a brief time before returning home. So... It, I'm, I think that there's like an ambiguity in their in their situationship at the end of the movie that's like almost affirming. It almost like feels affirming to see that there is like an ambiguity in in what they have. Right. Yeah. No. It's definitely not neatly tied. You know, tied together like, oh well, they lived happily ever after, and their boyfriend These 13 and girlfriend year olds now, yeah. lived happily ever after together. Exactly. <laughs> Um, yeah, you definitely don't don't get anything like that. So yes, I think it's resisting formula also in, in a way by doing that. So I appreciate that. And yeah, like you said, it's just sort of her figuring out what's what's important to her, sort of her value system and being selfless is kind of seems to be above all in all of that. Um, and so she she doesn't hesitate to go rescue Tombo when when duty calls. Um, Speaking of the the rescue scene and you know just the rest of the action flying whatever in the movie, um, the technical aspects of this film, um, we didn't talk as much about the animation with My Neighbor Totoro, but you know what do you guys think about the animation? You know again, are you still seeing a clear evolution from where we started and um, as we're moving into sort of different eras uh, of Miyazaki's filmmaking? Of course, you you guys have both praised the music. Um, you know, if you want to talk more about that, just how the movie looks, sounds, the world, did it, did it stand out to you? Is it different and distinct enough from the other worlds and environments that, you know, Miyazaki seems to create in every single film? I feel like visually we're probably at a similar level to the last two. I think there's, there's more going on in terms of action. Like you just said, you know, when we talk about some of these, like the, climactic scenes some of the flying i think you know when when we're looking around just the city like there are little things going on in the shops and on the street like details that we probably at least i wouldn't have noticed if they were let's say in like castle of cagliostro right i do think that we've established that this movie and the two previous ones all released within the same three years so it's not super surprising that it doesn't feel like you know super different for better or for worse but i do think like visually, you know, we're, we're still trending upward. Um, you know, I, I think the, the level of detail just like is higher than it was back in Caglio show or at Nausicaa in the Valley of the Wind. Um, we both did also bring up the music. Yeah. I mean, it just, I, you know, it's, it's not something that I'll be able to like necessarily recite the track or like sing to myself, like once we hop off now, cause you know, I'll work just, on that. Don't worry. I, I'm sure if I watch it a couple more times, we could, not quite as immediately catchy as the Totoro theme. Uh, that being said, you know, 
it just there is that scene where she's just flying around the city and you know the, the music's just playing and you're like we're just you know we're just flying it's it's good yeah i mean joe's ripping those strings you know he's letting it he's letting it go I, I think the the thing here, Scott, to, when I sort of glazed in on a different part of your question because I do agree with Jay that visually I think it's pretty comparable to Castle in the Sky and Totoro. I think that the level of detail is is what it is. It's better than exactly what Jay was saying than the first two films in the countdown. But it's not like it is super detailed. I mean, ultimately, these films are being made in like basically under a year. Totoro was made in like eight months. And this movie was also made in a really brief amount of time. So the level of granularity and detail is, is going to be limited for that reason. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that because the animation still looks great even today. But one thing that I do think does sort of jump out at me is that just like with Totoro sort of starting to really lean into like a different setting, I think you almost see like a transition happening in his movies. Like also, like obviously Cagliostro is its own thing, but as you sort of phase into Nausicaa, it's like a pretty barren wasteland castle in the sky there's these sort of mountain environment but ultimately like going into the going into the sky like it, it is still like a limited environment when you're spending a lot of time in this sort of very nondescript castle in the sky and then this sort of almost like futuristic but again still barren interior of laputa going into totoro it's like it's sort of similarly barren but in the countryside like you get a lot of detail but it's still like pastoral and countryside and here, again, I think you're getting a very distinct evolution of the setting because you're getting like a, a full city and you're spending, you know, the vast majority of the film in the city. Yes, you go into the forest for a bit, but it is almost um, it, like it does feel like a very distinct setting that we've seen so far in Miyazaki. So even though I think there there is not the most robust level of detail in the animation that you would expect as like a modern day animation viewer, there certainly is a distinctness in the setting versus the films that we've watched so far. And that is something that I think is what keeps it feeling fresh, even if the animation is not quote unquote evolving over time as we work our way through these movies. I, obviously that, that's going to change. That's going to start changing, but I do think that it's an, an interesting thing to note that the settings he's not, he, it doesn't really feel like he's recycling stuff too much. Oh yeah. Yeah, and, and then, uh, yeah, as to the music, I mean, Hisaishi, this is a beautiful score. You could, this is one of those soundtracks that if you played it for me, I would be able to tell you that it was Kiki's Delivery Service. I think it, it conjures up the exact image of her, like, light, like gently gliding, uh, like, leaving the train and gently gliding towards the city um, and then hitting the, the title card and whatnot. I guess the title card happens before that, but I just think that it's it's very evocative for me. I find I find the music very evocative. The the lilt of the strings that he's utilizing in the score for the most part, like I feel like I could be, I could be walking in like some, you know, almost like I, I don't know, like Swedish or Danish city with all these like colorful houses on these like light hills that you're climbing and and some one's playing this music coming out of like an open cafe. Like I, I can, I can just almost like see myself walking through there and look, it's, it's magical for one of the, uh, one of the many reasons that it is a magical score for, for me and is so evocative. Yeah. I mean, I love the, the world that he creates here. It just, it feels like this living, breathing city in a way that maybe we, 
actually haven't. I mean, as impressive as the worlds are in these other movies, maybe we get a little bit in Castle in the Sky. Um, but, you know, it, it contributes, I think, to the feeling of anxiety that Kiki has. You know, she arrives and everybody seems to, you know, be very confident in knowing what they're doing, knowing where they're going. Everybody has their own lives, jobs, whatever. They're all, you know, put together. And I think that that contributes to the emotions that Kiki is feeling over the course of the movie. And so I think Miyazaki does a, a great job, but yeah, not, not at the expense of colorfulness, creativity. I mean, you know, there's still so much of that just, um, you know, oozing throughout the movie and the design of the, the blimp, the dirigible is, is great. Um, it's just a, a beautiful movie to look at in a different way than these other movies are. And it is still immersive um, because I think we can connect it to something that we are familiar with more so than in, you know, Nausicaa, for example. Uh, this is like obviously very, like a not super insightful thing to say, but it also the fact that she is sort of getting lost in this larger city that feels like living and breathing and so much bigger than her is clearly like super important for the story and her journey being told. Just like I think it's super important that May and Satsuki are in a countryside where there's like no one around and everything is like focused on them. There's like nowhere else to look, right? There's nowhere, there's nothing else going on really, except for the adventures that they are managing to conjure up or the forest spirit that may like may randomly encounters one day. Like the the setting just sort of perfectly matches and everything for that reason, it just so seamlessly sort of all fits together. And I think that's one of the the beauties of this sort of fictional created, you know, you're almost like you're it feels very European. I don't know if it's intended to be, but I think European city. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it is, it does, I think it is supposed to be like European and has that European feel to it, but it is, it just still has a Japanese name, but, um, sure. you know, make of that. Culture. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, any final thoughts before we move into wrap up for this film? How are you going to uh, top this? Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> we're going to find out because there's still quite a few films. Maybe to maybe come. a pig and a plane have something to say about that next time. Yeah, and and you know, Jay, as much as we all love this movie, you know, I think the consensus is not necessarily that this is number one. So I am um, aware I don't live under a rock. Yeah, <laughs> that that means well, you hadn't seen a Star Wars movie until we did a podcast, right? Like but I, but three I knew... years ago, so I'm not convinced <laughs> that you don't live under a rock. <laughs> Touche. He's slowly coming out from his rock. Look, I, I mean, I, this movie is obviously extremely well regarded. Don't don't get me wrong about this. Like, oh, people yeah. do love this movie, but I don't even think people typically talk about this as even being one of like the elite Miyazaki movies. I think we're different. Maybe maybe I don't know if we're gonna end up being different on this podcast where we all just think this is like the greatest thing since sliced bread. But I, like if we were to all rank this in our top two or three Miyazaki movies at the end of the countdown, I think that we would not necessarily be in line with consensus on that. I would be shocked. I would be absolutely floored if this were not in my top three. And that's all I'm going to say. About I'm not that. sure. That, I mean, look, slow your roll, buddy. We got we got six movies left still before. That's fine. That, no, that's fine. Really There's some really good movies still, still to come. Yeah, all right. Well, but, consider but, me excited. We're back. We're, we're so we're back. Happy, we've been happy back. to hear it. We've been yeah, back. I don't know that. I don't know that we've been this united in like completely loving a movie in, in quite a while probably on the, the countdown series maybe since 
I mean, was there a Wes Anderson? Grand film? Budapest, Maybe. I think. Grand Budapest, yeah, that was probably the last one. But all right, Jay, what's your favorite scene or moment from Kiki's Delivery Service? I got one word for you, Scott, and it is fly. Just that last, you know, she like she like takes this dinky little broom, you know, it, it just goes like it just slowly gets completely quiet, and then just fly and then the takeoff is still just like not perfect which i think is great because like you know if it's one of those you know even even as we're building up to the scene i'm like all right i know what's going to happen here like she's gonna get on a broom she's gonna save him it's gonna be great but something about the way it just played out you know like again just the way it got quiet the way the word like fly was delivered and then the fact that it wasn't like completely perfect after that like I don't necessarily think it would have taken anything away from the movie. Like overall, if she had just like nailed it, like completely flawlessly. And now she's just like a perfect flyer. And I think that'd be very in line with, you know, a lot of things we've seen in movies previously, but I think there was something really special about the fact that it was still just like very clunky, you know, she just doesn't have that takeoff down yet, but she, you know, has found her like moment of inspiration She's going to save her friend. You know, I I have not felt that way in a movie since like What's Up Danger. And that's my favorite movie of all time. So again, I'm not saying this is my favorite movie of all time, but the fact oh that God. this was able to, you know, cat like put me back in a space that like I didn't know if I was gonna feel again was pretty remarkable. Yeah, pr- pretty crazy that uh, Post Malone is doing the soundtrack for Boy and the Heron. That's gonna be pretty wild when. We just let it rip on that. Post Malone is on like one song in that in that soundtrack. Let's just be yeah, clear about that. True. But moving on, Scott, what's your favorite scene? <laughs> yeah, for me, for me, I, I have a hard time not just saying like I, I mean, I just everything about this movie I just love so much. But if I have to highlight one, because we I feel like we started to talk about it a little bit, and we've definitely referenced this scene. But in terms of like a technical element of the movie that I think is really cool, like the scene where they are riding the propeller bike is like really awesome I think, mm-hmm. in terms of how kinetic like this film's just sort of very easy going last a days ago and then all of a sudden there's kind of this like big action sequence where they're riding this bike at high speeds it starts off and it's like humorous because they're like barely he's like barely able to pedal it forward but he gets going and they're like racing down this road and obviously things lose control but i, I just think that scene is like super kinetic and awesome and again you sort of see what like the Kiki's potential and in, in being able to like open up and be vulnerable and and enjoy the experiences she's having with the people around her and not be self-conscious like it's almost in that scene where you realize like the version of Kiki that we want to see at the end of the movie and she's not there yet but she gets like a window into that in this moment and you get this combination of this really cool almost action scene with this sort of flash of um sort of raw experience that Kiki is getting that she does not immediately realize is how she can live her you know live her life and i think that it's a really beautiful scene for that reason but i mean honestly you can convince me that any scene in this movie is the best scene i mean even the cows eating the hay when she wakes up on the train i mean let's go another scene we haven't talked about which i'll shout out is when kiki makes her first official delivery of the cat toy and um of course loses it and we have some pretty good comedy of gg having to pretend to be the statuesque toy while Kiki goes and tracks down the real thing, um, which is when she meets Ursula, of course. And we have a side quest there. I, I just like that, you know, 
uh, middle section there of like, oh yeah, I'll give you the cat toy back, but you gotta, you know, totally. help me out. It, it really is like a, a true side quest. Like it feels like we're going on, but um, yeah, just just that whole sequence, um, I think is it gets the at the sort of adventurous free spirit of the movie, which is one of the, the things that I love about it. All right, Jay, let's put a score on it. Out of 10, Kiki's Delivery Service. Scott, I think there are only three movies in the past five years that have made me cry while watching. And I'm not saying that's the only way to get a 10, but it's going to get you a 10. What were the other two? Let's into the spider. You're gonna Scott Harvey's gonna kill me. Into the Spider Verse was one, and Zack Snyder's Justice League was the other. Oh my god! Yeah, I yeah. know. I told you. Moving on. I know. What a bummer note to end on for you. How do we follow that? <laughs> I was gonna make a joke, but honestly, my the the fact your your real answer is funnier than my joke. Yeah, there, um, there's no way it could be funnier. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. Okay, well, there you go. Uh, Jay is like lined up day one to see Rebel Moon Part One or whatever. I'm so, not, uh, and that's fine. <laughs> but I'm just saying it yeah, happened, yeah. and it's fine. Sure, you are just saying. That's In right. any case, no surprise for me. It's a ten. Triple tens, guys. That's Again, we uh, did it. Maybe we did this on Grand Budapest as well. I think. I think we, we did. did. I think we had this yep. exact conversation uh, of like how many other triple tens have we given. But yeah, it's one of my. This is one of my favorite movies of all time. So of course it's a ten. I don't think there's anything. Absolute anything masterpiece. One of my favorite movies of all time. Seven point five. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, you say that it's not everyone's favorite Ghibli movie, and you're probably right about that. I think it should be. So give it a second look. If you're sitting here and you're like, "Wow, they like this movie a lot more than I did when I saw it," uh, maybe your life experiences will have changed and caused you to enjoy it more. Like, if you're you sitting here listening to our podcast at this point, thank you. We appreciate that. I mean, yeah. that. that yeah. But also, you need to move across the country, start a passion job, and then yeah. watch this movie after about a month or two of trying that. Sure. Exactly. Well, one of the funny things about this movie is that you don't really get the, the passage of time very well in this film, but there is supposed to be like quite a bit of time passing in this movie, mm -hmm. and it feels like only a couple days. It does, yeah. Yeah. All right, well, that should do it for this episode of the Miyazaki Countdown. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have and you'd like to support us, don't forget about our Patreon page at patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. Uh, even if you can't support us over there, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, like, do all the things that you do on your preferred podcast app, and check out our other podcasts on Like It, Scott, right here in the same feed, new movie reviews every week. And of course, we hope you'll be back for our next episode of the Countdown series on which we'll be reviewing Miyazaki's 1992 war adventure, Porco Rosso. Until then, for Scott Shelton and Jay Habib, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you down the road.